Uh, well, this Sunday is Palm Sunday, and uh, just having wrapped up our sermon series through Philemon, we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction for this Sunday and next. And then beyond that, we're going to have our missions emphasis time, so we'll be talking some about missions. Uh, but this morning, we want to focus on Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is kind of one of those occasions where if you've been warming a pew for a long time, you have the notes on this message. You know about Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry, uh, but what it serves for, for me, is an annual reminder of the importance of being a uh, a right follower of Jesus, I guess. The, the day of Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about this in just a minute, is a day of colossal misunderstandings. <laughs> if you've uh, been reading through the gospel accounts uh, and you come to the Palm Sunday, it's kind of refreshing because for once, everything's going Jesus' way. Everybody's saying the right thing. The crowds are in his favor. It seems like everybody's on board with Jesus. And up to this point, it's been nothing but opposition and argument and public confrontation. And then all of a sudden, there comes this chapter, and it's just this joyous release of praise, and the crowds are on his side. But as we'll see, it is a day of just great misunderstanding. And it's kind of a, um, a reminder to me of that passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus said, on the last day, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord. And on this day, as he enters into Jerusalem, there are many who cry out rightly, you're the Messiah, you're Lord, but they fundamentally misunderstand the man and the mission. This is kind of an annual reminder for us to be true disciples of Jesus, something we talk a lot about here at State Road. Let me just pray and ask God to bless us as we enter into his word. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open your word to us this morning. And Father, here as we give some thought to Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, Father, I pray that you would have your way here among us. Uh, shape us by your word. Sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth, God. We look to you by your Holy Spirit, to guide us into your word and shape us by it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Palm Sunday, if you're unfamiliar with Christianese, is the occasion of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. During the years of Jesus' earthly ministry, he had been traveling all over Israel, making quite a reputation for himself. He'd been teaching with extraordinary wisdom and power, as well as performing all of these incredible miracles. By the time he enters into Jerusalem, just about everyone knew how he had refuted the proud Pharisees in public to their face and had left them, the most learned men around, foolish-looking and fumbling for answers in his presence. Of course, stories were everywhere of how he had cast out demons how he'd stood up for the weak and the marginalized, how he'd shown compassion and grace to the worst sorts of sinners. He had been witnessed restoring sight to the blind, taking away leprosy just by willing it, and he had healed all kinds of other infirmities and sicknesses besides. He'd fed thousands from nothing. He'd even, guys, he had even raised the dead. Jesus had become a household name 
There was even talk within Israel. Guys, get this. There's even talk that this Jesus, he just might be the Messiah. The great national hope. The one that every successive generation has been looking for, hoping for. Guys, I think this is it. This is the guy who would free them from their oppressors and would establish a righteous kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital and would reign with justice over a new world order. Just think of it. Maybe Jesus really is that guy. Maybe this is happening now in our generation, right now. The first Palm Sunday, though, was rife with misunderstanding. Uh, Lots of people would say the right words about Jesus, but would fundamentally misunderstand the full import of what they were saying. And their feelings of joy and elation were the right emotions, but their affections terminated on a lesser hope than what Jesus had come to bring. And on the Sunday before being crucified, Jesus enters Jerusalem a hero. He enters Jerusalem as the great hope of the people, but on Friday, he would leave the city condemned, rejected, and despised. He'd enter Jerusalem being carried on the back of a donkey, but he would exit the city just a few days later under his own power and carrying a cross on his back. On Sunday, they cheered for the fact that Jesus had called Lazarus alive out of a tomb And on Friday, they cheered as he was killed and placed into one. On Sunday, they had excitedly declared him to be their king. And on Friday, they sought to kill him. And on the basis of what charge? That he said he was their king. Before the week was out, Jesus the Messiah, yes, he would wear a crown. But in grotesque, cartoonish fashion, it would be a very strange coronation with a crown fashioned from that symbol of the fall, thorns. He would be declared publicly as a king, but the, but the placard saying so would be hammered to the rough, blood-stained wood of the cross on which he too was fastened. Luke, in his gospel, captures for us the very moment when this Jesus, who had so captured everyone's imagination, arrives in Jerusalem at the beginning of what would be the most remarkable, significant, and important week in the history of our planet. Luke 19, 37 through 38 says this, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, For all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the testimony of scriptures, guys, leaves very little doubt about what was probably in the disciples' minds at this moment. This was the very fulfillment of Zechariah's very well-known prophecy in that generation, given centuries earlier, when it had said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This was it. This was the moment. Jesus, mounted on the foal of a donkey, was riding into Jerusalem, and the crowds were announcing him as the Messiah, and Jesus was not only not correcting them, he was beaming with delight. He was encouraging this kind of talk. It's a wild scene. It's a release, a joyous proclamation. At one point, the Pharisees, who fear what the Romans will do if a loud and raucous crowd of Jewish nationalists enter the city declaring Jesus king instead of Caesar, and of course, these Pharisees, as always, were jealous of their own positions of power, these Pharisees say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're clearly, their thinking is, there's going to be a massacre on the streets of Jerusalem if you let this continue. And of course, they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and they believe that Jesus' willingness to let the crowds talk this way was at best reckless grandstanding and at worst very dangerous. So they wanted them to stop, but Jesus answers them. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, motioning to the crowd, the very stones would cry out. Guys, just imagine the moment. Try and put yourself in the disciples' shoes. What a day this was going to be. They must have been wild with excitement and anticipation. Of course, nobody knew exactly what was coming. Jesus is a wild, unpredictable kind of man. And as they're going into Jerusalem, they really don't know what's about to unfold. But there was an electric excitement in the air. You could have cut the tension with a knife. Something big was going down. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, just as Zechariah had prophesied. The crowds were proclaiming him openly as the Messiah, and Jesus was not correcting them. Now, in one sense, the disciples were right. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises and prophecies. He's the King of the Jews. And he would be king of the entire world, just as the prophecies foretold. The book of Revelation tells us of the final fulfillment of Palm Sunday on the last day like this. Romans, at Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on our throne and to the Lamb. Everything from the adoration of the crowds to the palm branches, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was just like a little sneak peek of what was to come in glory. It was a foreshadowing of that day in heaven when God gathers home all his children all those who put their trust in Jesus for salvation and whom he bought with his own blood, and we celebrate together Jesus' victory. So no, they weren't wrong exactly. And that's why Jesus didn't correct them. What they were saying was true, 
But still, as we dig deeper and explore further, we see that their understanding was deeply flawed. And really, and this is very important for us to see, that if the disciples' hopes for that day, over 2,000 years ago, had been fulfilled, our hope in Christ today would be completely empty. If Jesus had entered Jerusalem in the way that the disciples were hoping for, that would mean that you and I would never set foot in the new Jerusalem. Why? Well, because there had to be the cross. Without the sacrifice on the cross, there would have been no victory over the real enemy, and that is what the disciples did not yet understand. They didn't yet see it clearly enough. Their vision of the coming kingdom was too small. I have here something I keep in my office. It's a reminder for me. Uh, When I went to the Vermont Police Academy ages ago now, as part of our training, they issued us a fake pepper spray bottle. You can spray it directly in my eyes. Smells kind of pepperminty, <laughs> but it's completely not dangerous. But if you read all the information on it, the labeling is exactly the same as the one I wore in my bat belt when I went to work. The wording's the same, the packaging's the same, it looks the same, but it's empty, it's inert, it lacks the punch that's needed. And these disciples who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with shouts and proclaiming the Messiah, all the wording is correct. Everything's right, but it's inert. It's empty of that which gives the meaning it's all its real punch. They completely failed to grasp what was most needed about Jesus. Nobody did. I, we can't really, I'm not mocking them. (laughs) I think if I had been there, I probably would have joined them. I don't think many people had the perspective that we enjoy now as New Testament believers. But their vision of the kingdom was too small. They they failed to see Jesus rightly. And so this moment is is a teaching moment for even us today. In Luke 9.22, Jesus had told them, And really, they should have known, maybe. Maybe I'm giving them a little too much credit here. (laughs) Jesus said some things that were pretty clear. Like in Luke 9, 22, Jesus had told them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then in verse 44, he told them, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But then in the very next verse, we're told, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. John Piper, commenting on the disciples' attitudes toward the triumphal entry, puts it this way, their understanding of Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem was flawed. They saw him as a king moving in to take control, and he was. But they could not grasp that the victory Jesus would win in Jerusalem over sin and Satan and death and all the enemies of righteousness and joy, that this victory would be won through his own horrible suffering and death, and that the kingdom which they thought would be established immediately would in fact be thousands of years in coming. We know that they thought Jesus would establish his kingdom immediately because of verses like Luke 19.11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
So from this verse and others besides, we see that as they moved to Jerusalem, toward Jerusalem, they, were get, they believed they were getting closer to the big day, and that that day would come when they entered Jerusalem. Jesus was going to make his big move. Some way, somehow, the kingdom would be established. And they, humble fishermen, though they had been, would be great men in the new order of things. This misunderstanding of why Jesus was coming into Jerusalem results in a basic misunderstanding of their calling as Jesus' disciples. And this is why it's so important for us to see, lest we fall into the same error. Guys, there is a really big difference between telling somebody, come to Jesus so that you never have to die, and telling them, come and die so that you may know life in Jesus. There's a big difference there. Both are true. I think in coming to Jesus, we do know life eternal. But if a disciple is shaped around the first statement, then they will be offended at the cross-carrying nature of being a follower of Jesus. If Jesus is an escape from hardship, then you're never going to be the sort of disciple, Jesus follower, who takes up their cross and follows him. The call of Jesus is come and die so that you may know life, not come to me so that you never have to know death. And I think there are a whole lot of Christians who have been shaped in a way that maybe they're offended when Jesus actually shows up in all of the biblical clarity of who he is and what he's called us to. And we know that they had a wrong idea about Jesus and the kingdom and who they were as his followers. We see this in like Luke 9 in verse 451. It says, when the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus. And of course, that meant something very different for Jesus than it did for the disciples. For Jesus, it meant that he was going to the cross. But in verse 46, we can see the visions of greatness that were already taking shape in the minds of his followers. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Oh, no. (laughs) They're going to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to lay down his life as a ransom for all of us. He's going there to die as a servant to all of humanity. And these disciples are so out of step with what Jesus is going there to do that they're already starting to squabble who's going to be minister of the interior. Who's going to be secretary of state? Who's vice president? It's me. No, it's me. This is the conversation they're having. And I don't think I'm reading too much between the lines here. They are drunk with images of the coming glory when Jesus enters into his kingdom. They're thinking in this moment when something like this, Jesus, we are on our way to seize the reins of power. You're going to be like Caesar. No, greater than Caesar. And that day will be a day of reward for everyone who has stood by you, who's followed you, who's found favor in your sight, and it will be a day of destruction for all of our enemies. Let's get the party started early. (laughs) On their way to Jerusalem, they come to a, a Samaritan town, and the Samaritans refuse to receive them. 
And James and John say, Lord, do you want us to bid fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Can we just start your reign of terror right now? <laughs> can, this become, can this be the start of it? But how does Jesus respond? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another town. And again, their words, in, in, in one sense, are right. Is there a day of coming wrath and judgment? Is there going to be a fire that consumes? Is there, day, is there a coming day of reward for all those who belong to Jesus and follow Him? Is there a day of wrath? And yes, all these things are true. But again, they're wrong-headed and wrong-hearted in this season of redemptive history. And it seems obvious to me that a poor grasp of Jesus and His mission will lead necessarily to a poor grasp of who we are as His followers. And as we look out at the church today and we see so many who claim to be Jesus followers but who don't resemble Jesus in the way that they lay down their lives in sacrificial service to others, they do not demonstrate much concern for the lost or for the pursuit of personal righteousness and holiness, it really makes you wonder if the root problem is that perhaps they, like the disciples here in Luke, don't understand Jesus and his mission very well. Or if they do understand it intellectually, they have not yet grasped the heart truth of it all. In Luke 9, we see that two competing visions for why they are going to Jerusalem results in two very different responses to the Samaritans in this village. And I'd submit to you that perhaps one of the reasons why Christians sometimes respond so poorly to difficulties and rejection and the world's hatred is because they, like the disciples in Luke 9, have a poor grasp of the life that Jesus has called them to and modeled for us personally. When we describe ourselves as disciples of Jesus, we are saying that we are people who sincerely, from the heart, follow his example in everything. And the surprising thing about Jesus is that he's, he endured a temporary season of suffering for a future reward of eternal glory. He did not say no to the cross. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem was his voluntary entering into a place of death. And what does that mean for us as his disciples? Jesus came to live a life of sacrificial dying service before he comes a second time to reign in glory. And that truth demands that we likewise live a sacrificial dying service before we can reign with Christ in glory as well. Make no mistake, glory is coming. There is a kingdom. It is coming in like the tide. It is undeniable and unstoppable. There is coming the unfading crown of glory and pleasures at the right hand of the Father forevermore. And on the inverse, there is also a day of judgment and wrath. The fire is real. It is coming. Wrath and reward are on their way, but today... The calling that is set before you on this Palm Sunday and in Jesus' example as he enters Jerusalem 
is that we must likewise set our face to Jerusalem, as it were. Luke 9, 23 through 24 reads, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. So Jesus didn't just take our place on the cross. He did that, but he didn't just do that. He set an example for us on the cross that we need to follow. And we as disciples should follow his example by laying our lives down as he did. As I just said, there is a day of judgment coming. But for now, these remain days of grace. The door is open for any sinner who would come in and be saved. And in these days, we must endure all sorts of suffering and rejection. There's work to be done. We're called to be filled with patience and love and grace and forgiveness because we are looking ahead to a future glory. Uh, This life is no place to invest our hearts and our hopes. Jesus entered Jerusalem to die, and he bids us as his disciples to come and die so that we might know life with him in order that we might live with him also in glory. And so for me, as I come to Palm Sunday every year, it's an annual reminder to me uh, to, to follow Jesus in a true-hearted way by embracing, by taking up my cross in these days. I'm looking forward to the day when I can lay it down, trade it in for a crown. Um, but I think part of what Palm Sunday does for us as God's people is this annual reminder both to look forward to the coming day, the hope, all that belongs to us in Christ, because it really is like a sneak peek of what's coming. But it's also a reminder of what we've been called to in the days between now and then. Amen? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. And Father, we are aware, Lord, as we finish out this time together, that uh, of who you have called us to be. Father, this Thursday, there will be a Monday Thursday service here at the church at 7 o'clock. And Father, I'm looking forward to that time when your people will gather together here at the church and we'll have a service of remembrance uh, around the Lord's Supper. Father, all this week is just a wonderful reminder of who Jesus is and who you have called us to be as we imitate him. So, Father, this morning on Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, next Resurrection Sunday, Father, you have given us so much to be hopeful about. We're excited. We're looking forward to the coming day when your kingdom comes in its fullness. But, Father, in these days, I pray that you would... uh, Help us to live the truth that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Father, I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be shaped by the idea that you bid us to come and die that we might know life, and that those who follow you take up the cross. So, Father, between now and that blessed day when Jesus returns in glory, I do pray, Lord, that you would shape us in a true-hearted way. 
and help us to be sincere from the heart imitators of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.